Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to learn about the 2020 movie simply called Worth. The name of the movie comes from the book the movie is based on. That book is called What is Life Worth? The Unprecedented Effort to Compensate the Victims of 9-11 by Kenneth Feinberg. To help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, I'm excited to be joined by two of the real people the movie is based on, Kenneth Feinberg and Camille Byros. In the movie, Kenneth is portrayed by Michael Keaton, while Camille is played by Amy Ryan. Before we bring Kenneth and Camille on the show, let's take a moment to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Priya was not a real person. She was a composite character. Number two, unlike the movie shows, Kenneth really was involved in a lot of the meetings with victims' families. Number three, in reality, the fund hit its goal well over a year before its deadline in 2003. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Kenneth Feinberg and Camille Byros about the historical accuracy of Worth. Before we dive into some of the details of the movie, I want to ask, what were your thoughts the first time you watched a movie about you? Do you feel it did a good job capturing the essence of what really happened? Well, in the case of Michael Keaton playing Ken Feinberg, I thought that much to my surprise, actually, because of the genesis of the movie from the book, I thought that the movie did a fairly good job of conveying to the uh, unknown viewer what we went through back uh, in the uh, the design and administration of the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund. It's 20 years earlier. And for 20 years, I doubted whether a movie could ever accurately convey what we went through, the stress, the tension the debilitating moments. But I think that director Sarah Colangelo and the actors did a pretty good job, better than I thought possible. And the result was satisfactory. But I don't know, Camille may have a different view. Yeah, I I agree. I thought uh, Sarah did a great job in compressing almost three years uh, worth of work into into the movie for two hours. And I think she really um, got to the essence of some of the key aspects. That's always a challenge in a movie is compressing that timeline down for sure. Exactly. Well, according to the movie, the way it sets up the fund itself, it mentions that Congress passes something called the Airline Transportation Safety and System Stabilization Act, setting up the, it's a mouthful, <laughs> setting up the uh, September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. Um, basically, as the movie explains it, it says that, if everybody sues the airlines, then the entire American economy could collapse. So the fund was set up as to compensate the victims of the attack in exchange for them agreeing to not sue the airlines. Did the movie do a good job of kind of setting up how that was and how you guys got involved? Yes. 
It did. It's accurate. Now, there's a fair amount of dramatic license in the film, but the basic supposition that you just referenced, um, the law was designed voluntarily, not mandated, voluntarily to incentivize people, entice them not to go to court, but instead come into this very generous fund. So that is accurate. How about the timeline? It mentions uh, November of 2001, starting with a deadline of December 22nd, 2003. And then the kind of the throughout the movie, it's trying to get to this 80% of people. Was that accurate? It was absolutely accurate. The majority of the, of the claims were filed late in the last year, with uh, December being uh, the largest month of, of, of claims to be received. Um, it was very accurate in terms of our attempts to do significant outreach to make sure that everybody was aware of the program and everybody, you know, came into the program and filed, and filed their claim for compensation. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something that when I was watching the movie, it never even occurred to me, was part of this task is figuring out how who the people are that need to be compensated. Uh, the movie points out that the planes have manifests and first responders like NYPD and NYFD have names. But if there were any logs of people in the World Trade Center at that time, that would have been destroyed. I think there's a scene in the movie where uh, there's two members of your team, Priya and Daryl, who are just writing down names on a, from missing signs. Is it true that you were involved in figuring out some of those numbers of victims and who they were? We were definitely involved at the, at, the, at the outset of the program. We received basically information from the New York Police Department. We received some information from the FBI, uh, local law enforcement. Um, it, was, it was not as easy as one would think to put together 
um, the list of the known victims. Of course, the employers also helped a great deal, giving us the list of their employees who, for certain, were victims. But yes, that it was accurate. Maybe not so much someone sitting down with a pencil and paper and putting it all together, but collecting the information was accurate. Yeah, yeah, it's just something that I never even crossed my mind. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, just because of the timing of it, if it started in November, I mean, that was just right after. Of course, didn't even know how many victims there were at that point. That's right. There is a scene in the movie where Ken is trying to explain how the 9-11 fund works to a room filled with the victims' families. And it doesn't take very long in the movie. People start getting mean. Uh, they're upset, angry, of course. I mean, it, it makes sense. You know, they're going through all these emotions. Did that meeting really happen the way that we see it in the movie? Pretty close. In fact, that, that scene, that town hall meeting, there were a dozen of them in New York. Boston, Los Angeles, places where people the, 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 the planes either crashed or Washington, where the planes either crashed or like in Boston, where so many families boarded those planes to go to the West Coast. So, yes, I would say that those town hall meetings in various locales, um, the movie uh, accurately depicts the anger, frustration of grieving families so soon after the attacks. And the movie's also fairly accurate. Camille accompanied me to most of those town hall meetings, and um, we um, caucused before and after the, the, the town halls to talk about what transpired or would transpire, what to expect. In that sense, that scene with Camille counseling Ken Feinberg at that town hall in New York City is is uh, is a good example of what we experienced. Uh, it, it, it actually that particular meeting it was intended to be the first meeting was was hugely attended, and it was much more difficult in reality than it appears on the screen. It was it was really a difficult meeting. That's right. And I, I think that's when we, 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 it really hit home how soon after the, the tragedy this was and how raw the emotions were. And there was no, in the movie, there's a fair amount of dramatic license throughout the movie. In reality, at, at, at meetings like this first one that Camille just described, there's no Charles Wolfe calming everybody down. Let's hear Mr. Feinberg out. There was no Charles Wolf intervening. We had to urge people, calm down and let us at least explain the law. And um, it was tough. Were you able to get through everything that you wanted to? Or, I mean, I imagine that, yeah, because there's all those emotions, uh, a lot of interruptions, I could just imagine. Yes, we, we were able to get through it. And frankly, I think, families in grief appreciated our reaching out to them. And there were, at all of these means, people did, no one shouted us down so that we fled. But it was very emotional, very, very tense. But people listened, and they learned from what we told them. But speaking of the emotions there, there's a, a theme throughout the entire movie of hearing people recount the stories of the loved ones that they lost. Uh, uh, for example, there's a scene of Amy Ryan's version of Camille, where she's helping a woman with 
all of her deceased husband's paperwork because she doesn't even know where to start. Or uh, later, there's another scene where Camille is just breaking down, crying in a room after hearing person after person recount the story of what happened. Uh, I think there's a, a line of dialogue in the movie that mentions, you know, we're not supposed to be therapists, but it's almost that's like a role that seems to be uh, portrayed throughout the movie. Was it correct to show that there was this balance of you have a job to do, but also having to deal with all those emotions and almost almost being therapists for people whose lives were irrevocably changed? Without question. And, and Ken himself um, sat through 900 plus um, of, of these very difficult meetings. And, and, and quite frankly, it was really an opportunity for the family members just to talk about their loved one and, to, and just to any anecdotal information that they wanted. They wanted just to present a picture of who that individual was, who was, who was their, their lost um, relative. And, and they were really, really difficult. And and the stories that were were told in the movie were absolutely accurate. They were true stories. Um, and each one that we heard was, was worse than the one before. So they were very difficult to get. Let me say, and I'm asked this all the time, but, but the single most important step we took to encourage people victims to voluntarily enter the fund were these hearings. These hearings were not required by the statute. We built those hearings into the regulations because we thought that by inviting people to come in and vent alone, confidentially, about life's unfairness or to validate the memory of a lost loved one, would go a long way to making the program victim-friendly. We were right about it, and it was critical, I think, uh, to the success uh, of the program. The idea in the movie that this was an epiphany, that, that Charles Wolfe brought this to our attention, that's dramatic license. Charles Wolf did a very good job, a very good job of promoting the program and calling for its um, modification. But uh, a good example of dramatic license in the movie, much to the movie's credit, is that, you know, Feinberg and Byros gradually realize about the value of listening and learning about empathy. Well, there's a certain dramatic license in that. Well, you mentioned, you know, Ken sitting in on 900 some there in, in the movie. I think he doesn't sit in on any of them. He's purposely doesn't do that. So it sounds like that would be some more dramatic license that the, the movie took. There. They got that wrong. <laughs> I, I, I can attest to that. They got that wrong. That's yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned Charles Wolf, and I want to ask about him because uh, he is a big part in the movie and his uh, organization, you know, fix the fund that, that concept there. The impression that I got was he was almost the little guy, like fighting for these, you know, 7,000 some people against the airline, big corporations, or, you know, they almost got this own, you know, little guy versus, versus the big corporation. Is that, that a fair assessment of fix the fund and Charles Wolf's role in all of this? We appreciate what Charles did. 
uh, I, I'm certainly a, a, a cheerleader and an advocate for what Charles did. I'm just trying to point out that um, Charles went from fix the fund to the fund is fixed, partly because of what he did, and he deserves a lot of credit. Let me just say that. Charles has kept in touch with us ever since. But also, I think he realized that our uh, decision to exhibit empathy through these hearings was going to succeed. And he rightfully felt that he deserved some credit, and that's fine. With those hearings, was that something that started from the very beginning, or was that something from some of those uh, town hall meetings that you started realizing that people needed to vent, or was... Right away. From the very beginning. Yes. Yep. In New York, in Washington, in Virginia, in New Jersey, the very beginning. Did you see them change at all throughout? No. We realized immediately that the hearings would be an essential opportunity for very angry people to come in private and vent. And um, our ability to offer that person an opportunity, I think those hearings were critically important. But Camille will tell you how some people came to those hearings, and as the movie pointed out, they did not want to travel up to the 15th floor or the 20th floor for those hearings. They demanded that the hearings be in the basement of the building. No, I mean, th- there was really story after story. There was one particular uh, meeting we held in our New York office at the time, which was on the 20, 26th floor, and it was all windows in the conference room. And there was a young woman who lost her husband. She had two little children. And we were um, at a conference table with her attorney, and we had a, a very, a very good meeting. And the meeting was completed. And I got up to walk her out to the reception area, and she stopped by the window. She was about twenty-four years old. She was a young woman. She stopped by the window and she looked out, and she was calm and composed throughout the entire meeting. And when she got to the window, she looked at me and she said, "They must have been really scared when they jumped out the window." And then she just broke down and just complete sobs. And that was the kind of thing that, you know, you know, certainly Ken dealt with all the time. And and it, it's just, you know, it just really, it's hard. The amount of patience that you guys had to have had to listen to those stories. Did you go from one to another? Did you have to, like, I just, I'm, I don't know. It, it's one of those things that I just can't fathom. It's very debilitating. We would do as many as 10 a day. But, but, always we would take a break. We would um, uh, try and, and, and you know, go outside, walk around the block, buy an ice cream cone, um, watch children playing in a playground. You, you, you have to, after a while, it's like torture. And, and every story different, and yet every story emotional, tears, wailing, crying. Um, I look back now and wonder how we were able to get through it, Frank. It was not. It's not easy. It was very, very challenging and very emotional. And we learned to listen a lot. That's one lesson we took away from just, just listen. Curious then with the the timeline because in the movie um, you know, there is that deadline that you're up against and 
all these meetings, I mean, that's taking away time that you're able to work on other things. And in the movie, it suggests that other members of your team helped with some of those meetings as well and, and helped kind of with the day-to-day operations of other you know things going on. Um, how much did the rest of your team help with the overall process in the movie? Get that right? And that's probably another sort of misleading aspect of the movie. We had a team of lawyers. We had a team of accountants. We had a, a, an IT team. We needed a fair number of people to make sure that all of the documents were reviewed uh, correctly, that the, that the calculations were done correctly, that the intake and the, um, you know, the public-facing uh, technology was, was adequate. So we had quite a number of people who were working behind us. We had some, some lawyer, other lawyers doing the um, meetings um, in addition to, to Ken and myself. So we had a lot of individuals working with us. Well, I'm not sure that came through in the movie as well as it probably should have. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's another thing, kind of like with the timeline, a lot of times movies kind of uh, compress people as well, just because you have a, a lot of people that can get really confusing to watch on screen. Yeah. Oh, I think that's right. There was a lady, a prominent a part of the films played by that young woman of Indian, I think, to say, who... Um, um, I think Priya is her character's name. Priya. There was no Priya. That was a dramatic license. That was a uh, um, a character, a composite of maybe a half a dozen exactly. uh, people who assisted. That was a uh, added by the screenwriter. There was no Priya, but Priya's attitude and her thoughtfulness and her desire to do the right thing exhibited the characteristics of the staff that we brought in to assist us. I think there was a, a scene where um, Priya almost, she gets overcome with a lot of the emotions listening to a lot of these stories. And the impression I got from, from her character was that she, understandably, she, you know, she couldn't take it. And, you know, I think that was when she went to go meet with uh, Charles Wolf for the first time in, in the movie. Um, what, was there anybody who kind of had to take a step back just going through all of this? Yes, they were, they were members of our staff who might have done a hearing because we were busy or something. Wouldn't do another one. There were people on our staff who really um, opted uh, to b- do some back room work or mechanical, technical work, rather than engage with grieving uh, family members. I wanted to ask about... Um Camille, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but the success of the fund at the end in the movie, it seems like a very last minute thing. Uh, we see the numbers on the whiteboard change in the, you know, in the beginning, it's like 12% committed in December of 2002. I paused the movie to write these things down. Uh, 36% in December of 2003, and then still only 51% in December 19th, 2003, with five days left in the movie. It's, so it's, you know, 51%. Uh, and then there's that conversation between Ken and Charles and Charles posts to his website that the fund is fixed. And then all of a sudden, all these people come into the office. There's big boxes of, of you know mail coming in that I was like, well, mail, did mail get delivered that quickly right after? But okay. <laughs> um, and then you know, we find out that over 95% committed to hit the goal. Did the movie get that right? It definitely got, got it right with respect to the last minute violence. There's no question about that. It was a very busy 
last few weeks in November and a very busy December while we got the last, the last plans in. So, so yes, um, the, 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 the dramatization of the big, huge boxes being delivered, that was, you know, we had electronic filing, right? Uh, you know, we had our back room that were receiving the packages. We did get some directly into our offices, but that was just to, for, you know, for dramatic purposes. Now, let me just say this. This is a very important substantive point. During the administration of the fund, where the, as you point out, and the, um, the, uh, they were dribbling in the claims. I remember Senator Kennedy saying to me, you know, we'll, we, we, you think we better extend the deadline to give people more time to file. And Camille and I said, don't you dare. If you extend the deadline, people will procrastinate. They'll delay. They'll hem. They'll haul. You watch. And I remember Kennedy saying, well, you know your business. Okay. And sure enough, as Camille says, over the last, let's say, not three days, but let's say three months of the fund, I'll bet you two-thirds of the claims came in. And Camille's right. There was no, like, mail truck that arrived with a 1,000 claims. But the last couple of days where you have to have a postmark by December 22nd, 2003, we were getting claims being hand-delivered, being left at our door. And that is true. Camille's right. Um, this was as we expected, as we expected, a last-minute flood of claims to satisfy the statute. And, and you know, we do this type of work. We, we run a lot of these claims administration programs. We implement a lot of these programs. It's not unique to the 9-11 fund. It, what, what, what the pattern of filing is usually very busy at the, at the implementation and introduction of the program. Then it just sort of levels off and there's a slowness. And, and then towards the end, is when everybody realizes that they, they must file and they must get the paperwork into us. And so it's, it's not necessarily unique to the 9-11 fund. We find that with all the problems. So it sounds like if I'm understanding right, then it was more that that people were procrastinating till there was an actual deadline, not necessarily as much that Charles Wolf posted this to his website. And then all of a sudden that's what, because the movie implied that that was kind of the, the reason why everybody poured in at the end. I think it, it, it was the just the nature of the process. And I think, you know, as I said, we see this all the time in all the programs that we run. Makes sense. Hey, people do that, do the same thing with taxes too, and any sort of deadline. <laughs> yeah, procrastinate for everything. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about the overall character arc. Uh, for for each of you, uh, for Ken, Michael Keaton's version of you in the movie starts off as someone who doesn't want to bend the rules for an individual case. But then by the end of the movie, there's a complete turnaround on that. And uh, for Camille in the movie, we see you more involved talking to the claimants than we kind of talked about. Um, and then at the end, when Ken has this turnaround, uh, Amy Ryan's version of you just immediately supports that decision. Um, so how well do you think the movie did covering your individual character arcs kind of throughout the entire process? I think in my case, um, there was no epiphany in the middle of the film. 
suddenly a light goes on. I think we knew from the outset that we had to reach out to these uh, grieving claimants and encourage them to participate. I will agree with the moral arc of the story that as we got into these hearings more and more, you do become more empathetic. And I think that's right. I think the film did a good job of conveying that. There is no doubt in my mind from the minute I saw the film that Camille Byros, played by Amy Ryan, is the moral center of the film. And that comes through loud and clear in that fabulous scene where uh, Camille is all by herself calling the same-sex partner to explain to the same-sex partner there is nothing we can do. And that really, I think, uh, uh, was very, very accurate. But I don't know. Uh, I, I just want to say one thing. The film uh, portrayed Ken as being all reluctant to have a, a one-on-one sit-down with one of the family members. And, and that just is 180 degrees different than what Ken is all about. He would be the first one and was the first one to pick up the phone and call one of the family members, sit down with the family members. He did it routinely and he did it constantly. So that, that was, that I think, that was one area that I think maybe could have been done a little bit better. Sure. Well, how do you feel, Camille, the movie did with your character arc throughout the film in portraying what it was like? I was happy with, with Amy Ryan's portrayal. I thought she, she brought a certain sort of uh, dignity to the role, a sort of quietness, and um, which I think, you know, the, the subject matter, uh, you know, deserved. And I thought I, I was very pleased. And I thought as the movie went on, she, I, I think, developed in her role in, in, in the, in the in the portrayal. What, what's fascinating about this behind the scenes is how receptive the actors were to our presence and our accomplishment. Amy Ryan, let's focus, Amy Ryan could not have been more thoughtful, nicer, engaging directly with Camille and others, but Camille learning from Camille, what was it like? What? And in the uh, PR at Sundance, when we were all there together, Amy Ryan and Stanley Tucci, Michael Keaton wasn't there, but Amy Ryan, Stanley Tucci, and others, all um, extremely gratuitous and and thoughtful in praising Camille and myself, what we went through. And that really comes through in the film, I think. They were very accessible and and very, very cooperative throughout. And basically, in all of what we did, quite frankly, they they were just quite lovely. Some of the specific cases that the movie focuses on, there was uh, Graham Morris, the gay man who lost his significant other. Uh, there was also uh, a woman, Karen Donato, I believe was the woman in the movie. Uh, her husband was a firefighter and then found out after he died that he had two other children with a mistress. And in the movie, you know, Ken is the one that delivers that news. Were those real people whose stories affected the way that you kind of considered each person's claim, like the movie shows? Real claims, different names, real claims, but a great deal of dramatic license in order to heighten the pathos and the tragedy and the dramatic interest in the film. Yes, 
there was a Karen Donato, different name. But if you think that as the administrator, I would go to her house to explain to her about her husband's other life, forget it. That is all written into the script. What we did with Karen Donato is we made a calculation for her and her three children and paid her. And without her knowledge, we did a separate calculation and paid the girlfriend as the guardian of the two kids. We never took, now that was 20 years ago. I'll bet you they know each other today, 20 years later, not our place. We would never go, and we would never go to a home and try and explain to someone other than Karen Donato, like her brother uh, or her brother-in-law, we would never uh, engage in that degree of family counseling. Uh, that wasn't our job. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of creative license to tell the story then of uh, being able to tie all that in. That's right. But those stories about the same-sex partners, Camille, myself, but Camille, th those were very accurate. Back in 2001, 2003, there were no same-sex partners uh, permitted by law to recover uh, compensation. And what we went through with about, I'd say, two dozen plans of family members fighting with same-sex partners over who gets the money, that was a very real challenge and a very real difficult aspect. Yeah, and, and also the scene, uh, the scenes with the undocumented um, uh, victim families. So you know that was that, that was definitely accurate. It was much uh, better attended than that that those meetings portrayed. So that was a very difficult uh, 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 period for us to try and convince these these people to come on into the fund because they were so concerned about being deported. So, you know, we had to, we had to work very hard to sure sure that these people understood that that wouldn't happen to them. And in addition to the same sex, um, uh, couples issue, there were also a few instances of, of individuals, uh, who were engaged, you know, a heterosexual relationship, they were engaged, but the, the parents then would not approve of any distribution to the fiance. So. That was another area where we tried to convince the families that the right thing to do would be to make sure that the field set was taken care of. The way the movie portrays the, those particular stories, it kind of uses them as a method of um, explaining why, in, in your in Ken's case, in the movie, you know why he's deciding to go into look at each case individually instead of kind of this in the beginning, you know, this broad, you know, everybody has to go by the same rules. Um, did you have to make any individual changes like that? A few. There were a few changes we made. If we made changes to the formula, everybody benefited. If we made one change because we convinced that a claimant was entitled to that change, we would make a similar change among all other similarly situated. But the, the, the underlying uh, story implicit in the movie is that somehow Charles Wolfe got us to change. What does that mean, to change? We didn't change the formula. I mean, the federal statute sort of laid out the formula. What we did do 
in terms of change is we encourage people to come and see us and talk one-on-one. And over the course of the life of the program, we were empathetic and tried to adjust, if we could, based on the rules. The, the, the film makes it appear that there's an epiphany in how we calculate the rewards. No. There, there was no difference there. Not really. Maybe a few were tinkering. Not, it was the whole um, hearing process that was so critical to success. Was there anything um, from the real events that didn't make it into the movie that you wish did? That's a very good question. Um, um, I don't know. So what comes to mind? I, I, you know, I, the, the focus, um, and understandably, was was on on the deceased victims and the families of the deceased. But there there were a number of, of seriously injured uh, victims, and and one that comes to mind was a gentleman who survived, who was. Uh, burned over ninety percent of his body, and um, had gone through thirty some operations, but insisted that he wanted to come see uh, Ken and I. And he came to our offices. Um, I, 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 I'm assuming it was at least a year after, uh, with his attorneys and his physicians, and it. it it, it was quite stunning. I mean, just the will to live because, you know, he was attached uh, to oxygen. They had to wheel him in. It, it was it was quite stunning. He wore the artificial skin? Yes, yes. And he had, I don't know how many skin grafts. And it was pretty remarkable uh, to see that. And then there were individual stories that just you couldn't, you had to, the, the movie would go on for nine hours, if you put it. But there were a couple of individual stories. One lady came to see me and said, "Would you? Uh, I'm going to receive a hundred thousand dollars for every dependent child that I have with my husband, and I'd like you to meet my family." And then all eleven children were brought into the room, the hearing room, private, all dressed up, the little guy with a bow tie, and just just heartbreaking. The oldest one, like. 18, the youngest one, like three, and 11 children. I mean, it was just heart-wrenching. Another lady uh, came in to see me to explain how her husband, a firefighter, died after rescuing 40 people from the World Trade Center. When he was running across the plaza of the World Trade Center, he was killed when somebody leaped to their death from the 103rd floor and hit him. Like a missile, both died. And she said, Mr. Feinberg, I'll never believe in God again. My husband, if you had taken one step, I go away. So there were stories in the book. This all comes out in the book that I wrote. But in the movie, I mean, after a while, and you can't pile on. You, you start telling people too many of these stories. They'll walk out and shake you. So um, they had to make some decisions on that as to dramatic art. And there's a story, why don't you tell it about the Pentagon, the, the father? with Oh, the father. A father came to me 82 years old, crying. I lost my son. He was at the Pentagon. He escaped 
when the plane hit. But he thought his sister was trapped. She also worked at the Pentagon. He ran back into the burning building to find her. She had already escaped through a side door. He died looking for her. And story after story like this. And, 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 chilling. Uh, chilling. Chilling. You mentioned the impression, you know, people walking out of the movie. And I think everyone has an impression from any movie when they walk out of it. Uh, What's something that you want to make sure, you know, somebody watching this movie, say this, they watch the movie and that's it. Then when they walk out of it, what's something that you want to make sure that they walk away with? That is my favorite question that anybody asks. What do you hope to achieve? What I hope to achieve, what Camille and I hope to achieve, 20 years later, let the public understand that just 20 years ago, not 100 years ago, the country as one, one national community stood behind these victims. And it didn't matter, red state, blue state, liberal, conservative, um, it, 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 it didn't matter. Back then, just 20 years ago, the country in a time of historical grief rallied as one behind the, 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 the victims. And I, I say to people, especially young people who don't remember 9-11, you know, it used to be that the country would set aside its differences during times of crisis and act as one nation the city on a hill. I doubt very, very much today that there could ever be a 9-11 fund. I'd be surprised. And that's a sad commentary. But that is what I hope people will understand. And I completely agree. The number of people who came up to me after the movie came out and said, I didn't know there was a fund. I didn't know anything about it. It is remarkable to us. I mean, maybe because we were so close to it, lived it. But it's remarkable that it's, it's history, and you're not aware of the fact that the country, uh, you know, developed this process whereby we can very quickly help people in need. Well, you you mentioned um, that I mean the, the the fund there, but that's not the only fund that you have been a part of. At the very end of the movie, uh, it talks about how you've also you know BP, the Deepwater Horizon, the uh, Newton Sandy Hook shootings, um, the Catholic Church sexual abuse claims. Um, how did the September 11th Victim Fund change your approach to handling these other funds, or was it kind of the same for, for these? Or I mean, they're all different situations, of course, but um, how did that affect it? Well, that was Sarah Colangelo, the director. She said one lesson that we want the movie viewer to appreciate is that this wasn't a one-off for the two of you, that Camille and Ken continue to do this. And I think the 9-11 fund for me was sort of um, an example of how after tragedy, the the American people may want to create another fund like this. And another fund, as long as they're successful, as long as we get money out the door, that we uh, help people, Uh, This became a rarity. They're very rare, these funds. I must say, this notion that this is a whole new area of the law, that's not true. She lists 
a dozen or so examples over a 20-year period, you're talking about one or two. I think the 9-11 fund for me was the toughest because, first of all, it was all public money. Everybody was watching us. The grief so soon after the event. The other programs, I think, were somewhat very emotional. Same emotion. But when you don't have to... When the money is a gift from the American people, you don't have to sign away your right to sue. It becomes easier to distribute the funds. The emotion never goes away. Brutal. Brutal and debilitating in every case. One of the key lessons uh, that we, we, we learned from 9-11, and which we adopted in most of our other programs, particularly with the church programs, is, are these personal meetings and the importance the important role they play, and the importance of, of not having a meeting where you interrogate the victim, but having a meeting where they can just explain and vent and have somebody on the other side understand and believe what they're, what they're telling you. Um, so that's, that was an important takeaway for us in, on, uh, after 9-11. The other thing is, you know, the, the, these other funds, there's a lot of similarity and a lot of differences, for example. And you know, a, a, a calculation of, of future earnings was done for 9-11. We, we did the same thing in, in um, BP. We did the same thing in GM. Uh, with the charitable funds, th- those are a little bit different because you have a finite uh, amount of money and you have to come up with a, 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 a process and a design to, to make sure everybody is treated the same. So those are, and there's not that much money to begin with. So those are a little bit different. Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the movie. I know we're just scratching the surface in this chat here, but uh, the movie was based on your book, Ken. Can you share a little bit about your book for someone listening who wants to dig in deeper? Yes. First of all, the name of the book is What is Life Worth, from which the movie Worth comes. And here's the interesting thing. I wrote that book in 2005 for two reasons. First as expiation, as, as a, a, I wanted to get out in, in printed form what we went through, the horror of processing thousands of claims. And the other reason, I'm an old history major from college, and I thought there ought to be a firsthand account for generations to come on how and why the program was designed and administered. Now, when I wrote that book, and it was came out in hardback and then paperback, it, it did fairly well. In 2005, 6, 7, 8, I was approached in 2008 by a film producer. We think this will make a great movie. I said, not a chance. You'll never be able to make a movie out of this book. Well, let us buy the book rights for a two-year period, and we'll pay you for the exclusive rights to the movie. 2008, 2010, 2012. Every two years, they would come back. Here's a check. We want to extend the exclusivity rights. I said, you guys are throwing your money away. Camille and I were in our office one day, unexpected. A check comes 
from the producer of the film for $150,000. What? Camille and I had to dust off the contract for the bull rights. And it said, the day we have a screenplay that will uh, be turned into a film, you get a down payment. And then the, the contract says, and the day we start filming, you get the rest of a payment. I called up the producer. Yep, we, we're making the film. Michael Keaton, Amy Ryan, Stanley Tucci. Camille thought it was a joke. She did. I, I thought it was a joke. And that's the genesis over a 10-year period from the sale of book rights to an actual screenplay to the movie. We had some say. It was some hard negotiating on the, on, the, on the screenplay as to how the screenplay initially would treat me, treat Camille, treat others. And we went back and forth with some conditions. But finally, this screenplay. And um, there it was. And, we, and during the filming, we went, watched them film the movie. The, Amy Ryan... Michael Keaton couldn't have been nicer. Hours talking with us. What about this? What about that? Amy Ryan talking to Camille about how you went about doing this and doing that. That's how that's how it worked. What a way to find out that they're actually making the movie. <laughs> totally surprised. We had no idea. We were laughing. We said, "Is this a joke?" Then we knew they were going to really go forward. A tremendous, um, by the way. A, a tremendous sense of gratitude to not only the cast and the director. The original producer of the film, Sean Sorensen, never lost faith over a 10-year period that this film would be made. And his colleague, fellow producer, Mark Buton, who was constantly in communication with us, those two producers, Sean Sorensen and Mark Buton, they know their stuff, and they had confidence in the script, and they pulled it off. Well, I'm sure you're glad they did because it's a story that I, I, I think people need to know. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, like you were saying, Ken, you know, future generations, um, it's, or even <laughs> you're saying, Camille, this generation, some people didn't even know that it existed, right? <laughs> amazing, yeah, totally amazing. And to go to Sundance for the world premiere along with our entire families, our children. It was like an event that we, you know, quite an experience. it was quite an experience to go to Sundance with her children and husband, my children and my wife, etc. And for a couple of days, they are just getting into the whole thing. It was terrific. It was great. Wow. Was, you had to walk the red carpet and stuff. And yeah, <laughs> we, yeah we did. We did walk the red carpet. Well, thank you, Ken, Camille, again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's a wonderful podcast. It's a wonderful idea to, to contrast movie and dramatic license to real life. And we salute you for the effort and congratulate you on your success. So thank you. Indeed. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. 
I'd like to thank Kenneth Feinberg and Camille Byros once again for taking the time to come on the show and educate us on the true story. If you want to dig deeper into what really happened, go pick up Kenneth's great book called What is Life Worth? The Unprecedented Effort to Compensate the Victims of 9-11. As always, you can find links to his book in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Priya was not a real person. She was a composite character. Number two, unlike the movie shows, Kenneth really was involved in a lot of the meetings with victims' families. Number three, in reality, the fund hit its goal well over a year before its deadline in 2003. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Priya was not a real person. She was a composite character. That is true. As we learned throughout the episode, in reality, there was a much larger team working on the 9-11 fund than the movie shows. So the character of Priya in the movie was a composite character who portrayed the same attitude, thoughtfulness, and the desire to do the right thing that members of the team exhibited in real life. That brings us to number two. Unlike the movie shows, Kenneth really was involved in a lot of the meetings with victims' families. That is also true. As Camille pointed out, in truth, Kenneth sat through over 900 meetings with family members. So that part of the movie is wrong. That means number three is the lie. In reality, the fund hit its goal well over a year before its deadline in 2003. As Kenneth and Camille explained, the movie was correct to show that most of the claims came in right near the deadline in 2003. But the reason for it was not because Charles Wolfe declared the fund was fixed like the movie shows. Instead, it was more just human nature to procrastinate until the very last moment to do something. Last but not least, it is time now to let you know how long it took to create this episode. If you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you'll know that I like to share this information just to help you appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to. After all, a huge majority of podcasts are like mine, completely free to listen to. But that doesn't mean that they're free to create. Quite the opposite. They can cost a lot of money sometimes, but almost every podcast out there has higher costs than money. They have high cost in time. The time it takes to learn the technical side, to research the episodes, to record them, to edit them, and so on. But I only have the stats for my own show. So with that in mind, today's episode took me 36 hours to create. And to make it clear, that's only my time. Obviously, Kenneth and Camille spent years just working on the 9-11 fund itself, so obviously that doesn't include any of their time. And to be a little more specific, it doesn't even include all of my time because that 36 hours is only the time that it took for me to produce this one episode. It doesn't include all the time that I spent building and maintaining the Based on a True Story website, finding new guests and scheduling, the logistics of all that, the email newsletter, social media, all those things that don't really have anything to do with making today's episode, but are still required to make the podcast overall. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. 
So if you found value in today's episode, and if you're using a Podcast 2.0 app that supports boosting with crypto, I'd appreciate that. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed today's episode enough to share it with a friend and maybe even consider help to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.